welcome into another episode of Behind the Catch Fence. I'm your host, David Hoffman. We're officially at episode 33, and we got another special guest for an interview. But before I begin, I'd like to give a quick shout out to No Copyright Music on YouTube. They're the ones creating the music that I'm playing. It's obviously no copyright music, so it's free. I'd like to thank you guys for that. With me being a pro college student, I'm grateful for you guys. Go subscribe to them, No Copyright Music. Welcome to yet another interview episode. Man, we're really starting to move up through our 30s. Pretty soon we'll be at the big 4-0, big 5-0, whatever it may be. <laughs> but it's been a star-studded March and April, to say the least, with guys like John Force, Richard Petty, Simon Pagano, Elio Castroneves, Stingray Rob, and just now recently, Bobby Allison, just all joining the show. If you haven't listened to those episodes yet, make sure to go check them out on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you may be. Today, we have 2018 NASCAR Hall of Fame inductee Ray Evernham joining the show. Evernham helped orchestrate the legendary Jeff Gordon of three championships in the 90s as a crew chief. Then Evernham left Hendrick Motorsports to start his own team in 2001, where he brought back Dodge as a manufacturer in creating Evernham Motorsports. His successful endeavors didn't stop there. Evernham, along with three-time NASCAR champion Tony Stewart, helped form the highly anticipated new racing series, Superstar Racing Experience, or as we like to call it, the SRX. The season opener of that will be introduced in the summertime. Evernham has been a staple on television as well from countless appearances on ESPN, Speed, Fox, ABC, and NBC's NASCAR coverage. He's also hosted his own car show, Americana, on the Velocity Channel. Evernham is a pure car junkie and his lifelong passion is apparent throughout the entirety of the episode. Now enough of the chit chat, let's get right to it. So sit back, relax, grab your favorite snack, could be some cheese curls, chocolate, whatever it may be. And enjoy this episode with Ray Evernham. Hey, Ray, can you hear me? I can. Can you can you see and hear me? Yes, sir. I love all the helmets back there. <laughs> oh, sorry. Hey, sorry about that. I was on the phone with Michael Waltrip, and we got rolling along there and lost track of time. I don't know. You're comp- yeah, you're perfectly fine, man. <laughs> uh, so first off, uh, how are you doing? Doing great. You know. Uh, Wish wish we had a little bit uh, more time. Uh, wish that we could add some hours to the day, but we just can't do that. So we just got to learn how to use them better. Yeah, yeah. You always wish there was at least more than twenty four hours, especially with starting the you know the SRX. I'm sure that's been a, a big you know task at the anyway, at hand. <laughs> it is. It, it, it is. You know. Um, but you know, we we knew what we had to do. So now, as I talked about, we got to lay it out efficiently, and I'm I'm really fortunate. Got a great team of people, some of the best people that I've ever worked with doing something like this. So even though I know that we've got a lot of work to do and we're on a short time frame, I'm confident that we're going to do a good job at it. And I guess just starting off, I like to always ask all my guests this, you know, because mainstream media, there's a lot of questions that get asked a lot of times. Uh, so what's a question that you're surprised you haven't been asked before? Oh, wow. Um, I guess it, a lot of people um, talk about, but they don't ask, you know, why do I personally want to do a project like that? You know, or this, why, why, why it's, why it's important to me. And so since I asked that question, I might as well answer it. But, you know, I've always felt that um, motorsports fans uh, ever since I was, you know, a child going to the local modified races with my uncle, it's really about, the personalities and how that send some of these local heroes and, and, you know, had an effect on my life and, and really drew me in as a fan. 
And I felt like we, we've missed some of that as the cars have gotten, uh, you know, more more about technology and computers and, and things. And, and I hate to see the human element of our sport go out. So uh, being that I have experience in the old IROC series, I saw some of that. Then I thought it's important to connect again for racing. If we're going to bring in new and younger fans, like it's great to see, you know, like you're, you're a young guy, right? So um, somebody who has passion to do this. And I think to, in order to, to do that, you really got to connect with the person, not with the machine. So thought that this would be a great way of, of having a great race, but really digging down into the personalities and, and getting people um, interested about the drivers. And, you know, the, the, those guys were larger than life to me when, when I was growing up, you know, they were the, they were the John Wayne's, you know, they, they, they were the gunfighters. They were the, and many of them were good role models and they gave me an understanding about commitment. And uh, not all their stories were great, right? You know, the, some of them had to come back from tragedy or, or from injury or, or, or had, a, had something. And I want to know those stories. So I want to get back to being able to show people about the racing and the race car and the speed and, and all those things. But also, more importantly, who, who are those heroes and, you know, what was their path like? And you mentioned just with, uh, you know, going to local tracks is growing up and that kind of thing. Where did your love for racing initially begin? Honestly, I can't tell you that because I don't know. I know that I have always loved cars uh, all the way back. to I had a little go-kart. I mean, I mean, I ran it till the, the, the it was a little, this little plastic marks a cart thing they used to call them, you know, like they're probably, you know, you know, it's probably in the vintage antique toy market now, but I mean, it was, I wore the wheels right off of it. Uh, and uh, I was lucky enough that uh, a man that my dad worked for, his name was was uh, uh, John Stoddard, Jack Stoddard, had a Texaco station in Homedale, New Jersey. And uh, he loved Indy cars and midgets. So they took me to see the midgets at places like Old Bridge Stadium in New Jersey and Wall Stadium. And then my uncle Nick uh, was a big dirt modified fan. And he used to go to places like East Windsor and Heightstown, New Jersey and Flemington, you know, uh, New Jersey, Reading, Pennsylvania. And he just started taking me with him a lot. And I just, you know, while the other kids were very interested in baseball and football and lots of other things, you know, I, I was trying to spend my weekends, um, you know, either, either watching at that time, you could watch bits and pieces of races on uh, uh, wide world sports or, uh, or going to the races with my uncle. And just as you're uh, as you're growing up through just racing and getting that experience in just various areas, uh, what would you say would be the your big break per se that really surged your career forward? Uh, without a doubt, it was my the the, the ability when I got hired at IROC uh, to work with uh, Roger Penske, Jay Signori. That really stepped up. You know, met a lot of great people in my short track racing career. You know, some of the people that that I grew up with at Wall Stadium and places like that. Oh, those people a great deal. But really, the big change in direction, the big step for me is when when I got hired and, and uh, again, was very, very lucky um, to be able to work with Jay Signori, Roger Penske, all the drivers, you know, the George Fulmer, and Dave Marcus, and, you know, all the people behind the scenes at, at, at IROC that taught me so much. And then on top of that, you know, getting the feedback from guys like AJ Floyd and Mario Andretti and the answers and Earnhardt and Petty, you know, on, on, and on, and on, you know, that, that, that was an incredible opportunity. 
And you mentioned with IROC, I know I'd read that you were highly touted by all the drivers as someone that could really like listen to them and have like that, you know, have to get them that, that technical balance that they, you know, they really wanted. Where did that skill, you know, come from? Um, I think it has to come with respect. And I think that respect came from knowing, you know, I was, I was trying to drive. I wanted to become a race driver. That was my, that was my goal. So I understood uh, a lot about what they were saying because I had been through some of it and because we were working with so many great drivers, the ability just to listen to what they were saying and try and break it down. Um, I think that sometimes it's hard for someone who's not driven a race car to not understand how hard it is. And they don't really listen to what the driver's saying, or they take it as a surface comment rather than, than, than digging down. And I, I always tried to somehow picture, create a picture in my mind of what the driver was saying to what the car was actually doing on the racetrack and then just tried to ask the right questions. And ultimately the drivers that I worked with, I, I believed in what they were telling me, you know, cause they, lots of times you'll hear a guy go, Oh, well, that guy doesn't know the difference between tight or loose or that guy. And you're thinking, well, he's the only, he's the only guy he's he's holding the steering wheel so you better try and fix what he's telling you now it may not be doing this because of this but then you need to ask the right questions so you know that because i had spent enough time in the seat to understand how hard it is and and then be having the respect to listen to the guys and i know back in 1990s when he first started working with jeff gordon when he was 18 years old uh, how would you describe just as he was coming up like what his driving style was, what he needed to improve on Just What was that aspect for you? Like watching him just initially get into stock car racing? Uh, you know, I always tell people, you know, Jeff Gordon is, um, you know, like if you were, if you were, if you were a music teacher that was trying to be, and you were an amateur musician looking for your big break, right. You were the guy that had spent your life doing, you know, whatever. And then you meet this kid he sits down in front of the piano and just blows you away. And you're like, Wow. You know, uh, and that's the way Jeff Gordon was. Jeff Gordon, uh, he, he was very much acted like a kid when I first met him. But inside the race car, he was as astute and, and uh, about that world um, as anybody I ever met. So I, I, I knew he, he was somewhat of a prodigy. I knew that right away. When he talked to me about the race car, there, there's certain things that there's no way that somebody that's that young without the years and years of experience could, could just be picking up those things without natural ability. So Jeff, and, and to this day, and, and I say this, Jeff, Jeff has great, he's great driving ability, but he has a very, very high racing IQ. You know, he, he, he really understands what it takes to go around a racetrack. And more importantly, he understands what it takes to win, navigate a whole race to, to win to, to put, to put a, a, a thought process together to win an event. And, and, you know, that's what always amazed me about him. And I'm sure you were able to learn from him just because I know uh, before you became full-time crew chief for him at a Hendrick Motorsports, I heard that you had never been a crew chief before. What was the, no. the learning process with that? Uh, it was, it was crazy. We had lots of good times, you know, uh, you know, unfortunately or fortunately for me, you know, I had to watch days of thunder a bunch to learn how to be a crew chief. So you know, watching Harry Hogg, crew chief of the Cold Trickle, was about as much experience as I had. Um, it was uh, 
it, it was hard, but yet it was fun because there were a lot of people on that 24 team that didn't have a lot of experience. So Jeff and I kind of grew together uh, and Jeff was really, Jeff really, really supported me as I was learning, as I did him, you know, I, I think we put on a, a, a enough front and rear clips, you know, <laughs> from him knocking the wall down on uh, our rookie year, you know, we, we kind of worked together, but I think the, uh, the hardest thing for me was, was, really learning to understand what responsibilities I could give up and what my job as a, as a crew chief was and, and, and how to handle, I had to learn how to manage that, that race as a crew chief. And, and again, I was very fortunate because at that, at that time racing was different. So a lot of guys helped me, you know, a lot, a lot of, a lot of really good crew chiefs. Like, you know, I got advice from like people like Jeff Hammond and Tony Glover and Andy Petrie, you know, Robin Pemberton. It was just kind of a group of, of guys that hung out and, uh, and, and those guys, uh, those guys taught me a lot. How was driver development just since, you know, that first time that you had a uh, crew chief chef Gordon, how has that like just driver development overall changed from like then to now? Well, back then we didn't have simulators and, and uh, you know, I, I don't think that, that, um, you know, there were as many people targeted at becoming race drivers so early in, in their careers. You know, back then it was like, hey, if you were 35 to 40, you still could get a pretty good shot at, at, at running a cup deal. You know, heck now, if you're 25 to 30, they think you're too old. So, um, you know, that, that driver development part of bringing, bringing a guy or girl in and putting them in your car and spending the money on them and teaching them that, I don't think is really exist anymore. What, what's going on a lot, it, you know, either people are finding money or they're bringing family money. They've got tons of experience in simulators and, and, and things like that. So they've got a pretty good race, savvy, um, tons of experience in this go-kart racing and legends cars, you know, there's, and you can get into late models. I mean, there, there's 13, 14 year old kids winning late model and modified races now. So by the time they get up to the NASCAR deal, even though they're only 20 or 21 years old, they've got a, got a ton of experience. But, you know, unfortunately, I, I think the, the sport's evolving to be a lot like Formula One, where, you know, we, we may not get be able to get to see the best drivers. We're going to get to see the best drivers with money. And that, that, that's unfortunate, because I, I think there's a lot of grassroots um, talent out there that may not get the ability to work up like a you know, some of the last guys that have been able to work up there without a lot of money, even though they had some factory support. But if you look at a guy like Kyle Larson, earned his way on talent, Christopher Bell, you know, so you hope that that some of these guys and girls are still going to get a shot because a manufacturer sees a ability in them or a sponsor or, or, or whatever, um, because the sports just it's getting expensive and it's easy to understand. You know, the owners have got to have the money to put the cars on track. And you mentioned just with uh, just having to have have those roots. And, you know, I know a guy that comes to mind is Josh Berry, who had won the the Xfinity race at Martinsville this past weekend. I know he's he didn't really have those opportunities, obviously running for junior for a lot of years, like in lower, you know, like what late model, that kind of thing. But I think it's just interesting just how some guys like or even a William Byron, just a I racing was a big thing. Um, and that's kind of what helped propel his career. But it's just interesting to hear as guys like a Jeff Gordon, Tony Stewart, whoever it may be, just how that's just varied so much over the years. But yeah. It, it, and again, it, it's, it's, unfortunately it's just, it's evolution. 
right? It, it's just it, as the world evolves and machines evolved and sports evolved, it just you know it, it's um, it's tough to to get into the sport without a lot of money. Still, feel, if you got a lot of talent, if you got a lot of talent, somehow, some way, maybe the money will will uh, find you. You know, uh, and and again. Guys like William Byron, you know, William Byron's not a gazillionaire. His family's not, not aren't gazillionaires, but he had enough talent and got out in ability and he brought some sponsorship in and was able at least to get a start. I think and he might have, I believe he got his start with Dale Jr. as well uh, in, uh, in, in, in Dale's late model deal. So, um, you know, but a, a guy like Josh Berry, you know, th- the cool thing about that is his name, he's very well respected. His name is very well respected. A lot of people, man, you know, if I had the money, I'd get that kid. Get, well, maybe some, somebody will show up with with, uh, with some money. And um, that pure emotion that we saw the other day with him winning from him and then from Dale Jr., those are the things I think that um, really interest people and interest the race fans. So if the sponsors are smart and somebody's out there and they want to market property, you know, they look at that and think, okay, here, here's something that race fans will connect with. They, they, they connect with the fact that this guy has made this commitment and he appreciated the winning. And that's, that to me, you know, it is an important factor. Uh, Mike Joy made a, a comment uh, a few weeks ago and he was spot on about it. You know, like there's, there's some people that come into this, this, uh, this sport with, um, you know, they're not as appreciative of the opportunity or, or, um, you know, what they're doing. And I think Mike's comment was, Hey, this sport wasn't designed just, you know, so that they could have a good time. You know, that there's, there's responsibility that comes with, with working here. So it was great to see somebody like Josh Berry and Dale Jr. Show that emotion openly. Uh, That Mike Joy comment, I know that got a little bit of heat, but I mean, he was exactly spot on. It's just, it's gone away a lot, as you mentioned, just, I mean, cause it's like, you see, you like, I feel like it's just fans, like you said, connect more with, that emotion of like, wow, like they worked their tail off so hard just to be able to get to that moment and they're going to just relish in it. And, and you know, that, that's, it, it, it's, to me, uh, it, it, it's, it's an honor to be here, not a right. You, you know, the, you, it, it's just because you have all the money in the world that still doesn't make you a racer, right? It just makes you a driver with money, you know, to, to, to get the title racer. Uh, there, there's a little bit more that comes with that. So in, in our world today, we, we have, we have racers and then we have drivers with money. It's definitely hard to, yeah, you can sometimes see it more apparent than some, but, <laughs> uh, but just as, um, you know, moving on, just how would you prepare as a crew, as like a crew chief when you were, you know, initially starting to get into the series and how did that kind of evolve as you kind of got more experienced? I think the same basic things, right? You know, the, the good news about uh, automobile racing is the laws of physics don't change. And those cars still respond to the laws of physics, even though some days you don't think they do. But, you know, the, uh, understanding the, the same things that win a race, right? You, you're got to have a good handling car. You've got to have a car that's that's right aerodynamically. You've got to have good fuel mileage, good strategy. you got to tire. you got to have a plan. you got to have a pit crew. So, you know, w- we worked on all of those things to make sure that, we had all of the uh, all of the things that, that, if you will, the categories that could help you win a race. You know, because you had to have all those things right. You know, because you needed all of them to win. Only one of them could stop you. So, depending on 
the track, you know, was the track dominant aerodynamically or was it dominant mechanical grip? Is it, was it a fuel mileage strategy? How did our tires go? Uh, pit stops, pit pick. So just about anything that could dictate an advantage or disadvantage in a race, we studied uh, and we, we didn't have, we didn't have all the computers and apps and programs and a lot of that stuff was, is done the old fashioned way, you know, tons and tons of, of notes and research on caution histories and percentages of, of this and that. So, you know, I always tell everybody, look, it's, it's not, it's not rocket science. It, it, it's, it's extra work. You know, racing is a big part mathematics and common sense. And uh, just, I know your biggest rival in the nineties, you and the 24 team was Dale Earnhardt, the uh, three in the RCR team. Uh, just what was the atmosphere like at the track as you, you know, had to go through that every week, knowing that every week your main competitor was that three car. Yeah, he was the main competitor, but we also had some pretty tough guys, you know, of course they, they talked about the black three, you know, there was a black two that gave us a pretty good run for our money. You know, Rusty was tough. Uh, Mark Martin, incredible competitor. Uh, Dale Jarrett, you know, we, we, Bobby Labonte, Terry Labonte, we raced with our, you know, we raced with some, some great guys, but I, I look back at that and think it was an honor. It was an incredible honor to race with, uh, to look and think that, that we were Dale Earnhardt's competition, you know, um, whether the greatest driver, not greatest driver, still the biggest name driver in NASCAR history. Right. So, uh, now I don't mean any, um, disrespect to Richard Petty. But we didn't get to race Richard Petty. So, you know, Richard Petty's, we, we didn't get to race him. So I don't, I don't, I respect what he and Dale Edmond did, but, but with Earnhardt, we had to race him. We had to race him hard and, and, he, and he was tough and he was tough on us some days, you know? Um, and I look back at that and think those were incredible times. And, and they, they were for everything in my career, being able to say that we raced head to head with the best and days beat them. You know, um, you know, those, those are some of the highlights uh, and a lot of uh, my memories and some of the good stories I have involved Dale Earnhardt. So uh, again, it was an honor to, to have raced those guys. And during that time, uh, what, was there any specific Dale Earnhardt story that sticks out in your mind? You're like, wow, that was, that was pretty cool. Uh, You know, he, he was, um, he was, tough uh but you know like fool around we we talked a lot um we had some hard conversations uh he threatened to 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 whip my butt one day uh and, and that kind of intimidated me because i was pretty sure he could do it if he wanted to um and then he laughed you know so he would he would he would scare you and then he would hug you uh, uh you know the the, the I think one of the the stories I like to tell is I think it, I can't remember if it was our first Bristol win. It might've been, I saw a picture the other day, but we were leading a race and uh, Earnhardt had wrecked and he was trying to get laps back. And so Jeff had gotten into another car and bent the right front fender of, of our car of the 24 car. <clears throat> and uh, he was saying, man, I'm tight. I'm tight. I bent my fender and, you know, on the radio and he was getting, upset, a little frustrated. <clears throat> and Dale Earnhardt was coming from the back with no nose, no, like his whole, it looked like a modified. And so I, I called, I said to Jeff on the radio, I said, well, I know you got a bent fender and your car's not handling you, but the guy behind you is about to pass you and he doesn't even have fenders. <laughs> and Jeff was like, Chong, he took off, you know, and like, oh, wow. And uh, 
I, I just saw a picture of uh, the 24 and then the three behind it with, with no nose. So I think that was the day, but uh, you know, you, you, you hear those legendary stories of, of, uh, of Earnhardt and, and they're true, you know, things like winning Bristol with, with no power steering and, you know, there, there was a time, honestly, uh, he was in a Wrangler car at uh, Talladega and somebody lost a dry shaft. And the dry shaft hit that Wrangler car right in the windshield. I mean, bent the road cage. It was it, so lucky it didn't come through. It would would have been terrible. But the it cut his face up, you know, when they were open face helmets. So he pits, they're putting a windshield and everything in the car and he's taking duct tape and just duct taping the cuts up in his face that goes back out and races. You know, he's just, you know, you look at the time that he was hanging out the window at Richmond, just wiping the, the windshield. So when, when you see there, he just was, he was unique. He was a different breed. You know, there was no one like him before him and there's no one like him after him. I think that's just what made NASCAR so special. And what really made it more mainstream is just the fact that you had those personalities of guys that, you're pretty much a badass in a way. And, you know, it's just such a cool experience just for fans to be like, wow, like that guy, he's like, he's just a legend in, you know, in his own right. Cause he's himself. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that is what I hope that we can have people see again with the SRX series. Cause a lot of people look at Jeff Gordon and, you know, he was sneakers and, you know, he, he, he wasn't Wrangler jeans and he wasn't cowboy hats. He wasn't a black car. You know, he was, you know, as I said, sneakers, shorts, and a rainbow car, and you know, and people assume that he was soft. Uh, and I tell people that when they say, "What, what, what?" Tell us something about Jeff Gordon that we don't know. Tell them, you have no idea how tough that guy was. You know that that commitment that we're we're talking about again. I I can remember you know being in August at, at Darlington for the Southern 500. It's 100 and some degrees out. He's throwing up in the car and just pouring water on himself, and still goes out and wins a race. I coming in at Watkins Glen where his glove ripped apart and skin hanging off his hand from shifting the car. You know, he had, he had, you know, a, 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 an issue with his back, uh, you know, as we finish in, in the 95 season, trying to win championship and, and everything. And he's just in such pain and just getting in and, and getting it done and never complain. And I'm thinking to myself, this is what this commitment's about. You know, you know, his responsibility, his desire to win, but his responsibility to not let the team down, you know, you know, Jeff was as much of the team leader or more of the team leader than I was, but quietly. And, and not a lot of people know that, but just with the example he set. And it's one of the craziest moments I know in that 24 car when you were crew chiefing was uh, that 1997 all-star race uh, with the T-Rex car. Uh, how did that car come to be and just what made it just so special? That, you know, the, the urban legend for that car gets much bigger and then had grown faster than the actual speed of the car, <laughs> you know, but as I said, the, the, that, that was Mr. Hendricks idea. He told everybody to get together, give all of their ideas for a new car to Rex Stump, uh, our engineer, another brilliant guy, Gary Aker, a brilliant aero guy. We had great, just great people. They built that car. Um, and it was just different. It, just, it was just different. It just didn't work that good when uh, we tried to set it up like the other cars. Uh, had a little bit different aerodynamic body packet. It, it was just different. So we, we kept screwing around with it. And then finally at Charlotte, we hit on some things that were very different setup wise and didn't know if it was going to work or not. So we said it picked up a lot of speed. So we decided to, to uh, try it for the uh, 
for the Winston. And, you know, again, people go, oh, they won all three segments. Well, we, we didn't. We didn't win all three segments. We won all three segments in 95, I think, with, a, with another car. But um, the car was just fast in certain situations. And that day, I always say, if anybody else would have been driving that car, T-Rex would still be legal. But Jeff just was like, he, that was when he was on, on his game and he was going to see how fast that thing went. So, um, truth is, you know, it, with uh, that, that 10 lap shootout, he ran laps that were almost a second per lap faster than the second place car. So, that was kind of the end of, of T Rex. By the time we got back from Victory Lane, the other owners were lined up at the trailer. And as I said, the car wasn't, it, 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 it had a lot of great ideas in it, but it, it, it wasn't it wasn't something that was going to really make the sport or make everybody re, you know, sell their cars and build new cars and, and all those things. But again, the perception was that it was so, so it was legendary. Uh, I had to make the phone call to Mr. Hendrick and, and tell him that they were about to outlaw his car. So it was a, it was an interesting night. So there wasn't anything technically illegal with that car, right? Not at all. That car was built by all the rules and, um, NASCAR had seen it and inspected it. It was kind of funny because I said to, uh, to Mr. France, I said, the car is legal. And he said, it won't be tomorrow. <laughs> so they rewrote the rule book. I'd say that has to be a really great accomplishment to have on your resume. You know, you basically changed well, the rule book. Said, you know, the, the pre- straight up, and, you know, and this is something that, that your, 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 your audience and younger people, everybody needs to know, you know the, the greatest accomplishments that I have in my career have been just being part of a great team at the right time, right? You know, that, that's, that's the key. I get a lot of credit for, for stuff, but the, the point is being with the right team at the right time has been the key for me. And you mentioned just with your team overall, I read that you almost like revolutionized how a pit stop is made. What, how, what went into just creating like a pit stop that was more just efficient overall? Well, and again, you know, I get a lot of credit for that. And, and I'm, I'm proud of it, but all I did was take somebody else's idea and improve on it, which is the evolution of mechanics, or that's just the way it is. The Wood Brothers really are the guys that, that should get credit for the modern day pit stop, without a doubt. You know, the, their thought process and the things they did. So all I did when I got into the sport was think, man, you know, how can you, you know, everybody was doing their choreography and they had this fast guns and making the jacks faster and all that, but they didn't work on the people because the people who were doing the pit stops were the same people that were working on the cars back then, 16, 18 hours a day. And everybody's like, what? You know, you think we didn't go in at eight to five, you know, like most race teams were understaffed under people, you know, there, there were 13 people when we started that race team, you know, now they got 60 and people are like, Oh, well, you were working hard. Oh, really? How about, would you like to drive the van, go here, do this, you know, like, so I thought, how can I, how can I expect these guys to perform on Sunday when they're just, you know, you, you, you go to a place like Bristol, right? Where you're working on a car all day in 90 degree, hundred degree heat. And then you're going to be a pit crew member, Bristol on Saturday night. So we tried to bring in part-time people who necessarily weren't um, mechanically inclined or experienced, but they were more on the athletic uh, area and decided to work on the people. You know, we decided to, to specifically work on the people and then work on the equipment, too. And as I, said, I don't think it was a revolutionary idea. You know, the Wood Brothers really, you know, they, they, they're the father of the modern day pit stop. Um, Alan Kowicki was into the uh, training 
people. I mean, he, he had started it. So, and I got to spend some time there. So, you know, all I did really was, was take other people's ideas and make it work. I know like, especially now today, it's more, you see a lot of former football players, just all these guys that are just so, you know, so just trained just to be able to do that specific job. And I think, yeah, it's just, it's crazy to me just how that's evolved over the years. Well, it's just like the Olympics, right? Every year people run farther, they jump higher, they, they, you know, they do things better. It's the same stuff. The difference is the human development. And you look at the pit stop, same way. You know, all of the speed, all of the gain in the pit stop comes from the human element. And uh, you had won, you won three championships, 47 wins with Gordon in the, you know, the Rainbow Warriors car. Uh, 19, after 1999, you uh, left the team to uh, you know, start, um, you know, Everham Motorsports and Dodge, you know, bringing them back. Just what was, what was your decision in just leaving the team after having that much success? Uh, wanted to really just, you know, we, we'd won everything you could win two or three times, some of it four or five times. And, you know, th- that opportunity came up, you know, Jeff was, had grown. We'd been together for a long time. He didn't need a crew chief like me, um, you know, and, 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 you know, Rick Hendrick, his organization had grown. I had an opportunity to start from scratch to see if I could do it. You know, I mean, I, I got to, the ability to help develop a motor, build a car from scratch, start teams. It, it, it was a challenge. You know, it was a, it was very, uh, it, it challenged all of my skills. It was very financially uh, rewarding. You know, and in the end, you've got to sometimes just trust your gut to go in a different direction. One of the hardest decisions I've ever made in my life was to leave Hendrick. Could have been there still, you know, they, you know, could have, you know. Um, but, you know, the, the good news is that Jeff Gordon and Rick Hendrick and many of the Rainbow Warriors and I are still as close as the day that, you know, the, we started or the day we won that first championship. And in life, sometimes you go in a different direction and people grow People always say, well, you and Jeff could have done this. You and Jeff could well, who knows? M- maybe not. As I said, the key thing is I think I grew by going my path. He grew by going on his path. Mr. Hendrick has certainly done a, done a pretty darn good job with, with Hendrick Motorsports, and we're all very good friends still to this day. And you mentioned just with, uh, you know, challenging yourself to go and create your own team and just what were specifically what, t- you know, type of challenges that come with, you know, bringing back a manufacturer hasn't been in the sport since 1985. Uh, a lot of educational process. You know, anybody can tell you that working with a manufacturer that that that, that we're working with people in manufacturer that aren't that don't really have a concept on how auto racing works. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but you know, it takes some time to get experience to get around it to understand that you know, it'd be like if, if I just jumped into putting cars on assembly line. I think I know. But, you know, they always say, you know, you're the most dangerous when you don't know how much you don't know. And a lot of people coming in for the first time really don't know how much they don't know. So um, sometimes people that are making very important decisions on budgeting and direction don't don't really understand the the process. I was fortunate that um, Dodge had some really good people early, um, you know, that that put the program together uh, at the time that I was hired and uh, our first couple of years were under Dieter Zetcha, uh, and you might that name <laughs> may ring a bell because he also started the Mercedes Formula One team. Got a little guy driving for him there at uh, you know uh, uh, Lewis Hamilton. You might have heard of him. So Dieter Dieter uh, very much understood racing, and then as things started to change, and you know 
again, in our program wasn't as successful. Helped a lot when Roger Penske and Chip Ganassi, um, you know, got together, you know, there. But, you know, it, it, um, the, the, the biggest challenge that you fight are the changes that come ab from above you that, that supply the funding. I'm sure it helped having one of the most, you know, one of the greatest drivers of all time and Bill Elliott coming over to, you know, join the team as well. Bill is just an amazing person. Um, you know, he obviously great driver. Uh, I always tell people the difference between Jeff Gordon and, and Bill Elliott, both extremely talented drivers, tremendous feedback. You could lay a quarter out on the Daytona Speedway and uh, tell them I put a quarter out there. Both of those guys could find it and hit it, you know, uh, run it over. Bill Elliott could tell you if it was heads or tails. Now, Jeff would stop and pick it up, put it in his pocket and reinvest it in the stock market and make a million bucks, right? That's the kind of luck that Jeff has. But uh, uh, both those guys were incredible like that. But Bill's detail um, about motors and gears and things like that, uh, pretty incredible. And uh, with Bill, obviously now he'll be over at the SRX. Uh, speaking of the SRX, so how did that idea initially come about? you know, it's, it's really IROC 2.0, you know, it, it, you know, you've taken superstars and, you know, they did superstars competition with football guys and golfers and basketball players. It's something, you know, that that's been around for a while, right. You know, taking the best competing against, just find out who, who is the best, whether it's throwing a football or hitting a hockey puck or, or whatever. So it's not a new idea, but the way we're going to do it is a little bit different because we've, we've got our, our superstars, our 10 superstars, and we're going to bring in a, a, current ringer from another series to see if he can beat. you know, it may be a current cup guy or a current indie car guy, a current road race guy. And then we're also going to have our, our grassroots all-stars, you know, like a modified champions and sprint car guys to, to race against it. I wanted to call it the Rocky Balboa team, but I'm not sure that Sylvester Stallone will let us do that, but I don't know if you know him, call him up and ask if I can use that or, or not. But um, I just think that, that there's a lot of really great racers out there. Um, it just reminded me of that Rocky Balboa, a guy you never heard of nationally, but locally, here he comes and, and man, he, he puts the champions on their butt. And that's what, you know, so when I look at this series, this is really about entertaining the race fan. The, the competition is going to be very legitimate. It's going to be tough. It's going to be whatever, but we are going to work hard to introduce the personalities of the drivers to the fans and just what all went into designing the car and just how much input did you have from the drivers themselves? Um, I've had a lot of input. I mean, I'm, I'm a part owner in the, in, in the series, so I have a lot of the technical uh, and creative input. It, you know, my partners, George Pine, Sandy Montag, and Tony Stewart have left a lot of that up to me. I worked closely with Tony Yuri and uh, the people over at Fury Race Cars. Uh, you know, really everything that we have is based off of stuff that they were already doing. Um, we put together some of those ideas and made the SRX car out of it. Um, I drew the original body uh, design up, um, but, but Kerry Hitt and his people at Advanced Composites did the finish work on it. And uh, so it's a very unique looking car. Um, it, it, it will have an Elmore uh, engine in it. You know, uh, again, I think that's probably about the finest name in, in engine building. And so it's, it's a, we're not trying to reinvent the, reinvent the wheel with the car. We, we want, we, we don't want 
the car's cool and it's cool. It's my baby, right? But I don't want the focus to be on the car as much as I do on the drivers. And just what all went into figuring out the driver lineup, just the initial, the 10 drivers you mentioned that are going to be running full-time. Uh, I wanted to get very, very well known names, superstar drivers, if you will, that were still somewhat active, um, you know, and when I look down at the list, you know, I know that, you know, Bill runs cause I have to, unfortunately I have to race against him once in a while on road course stuff. Uh, Tony's very active, Bobby Labonte active, Michael Waltrip active, Marco Andretti active, Paul Tracy is as active as anybody as I know. He said, he's not, he's not lifting weights. He's racing boats or racing cars or racing dune buggies or something, you know, obviously Tony Kanan, Elio Castroneves is still, still active, but they're not full-time. So they could take, you know, and be part of our event. Willie T. Ribs still active. You know, he won the, won the vintage road race championship last year. Ernie Francis reigning formula one champion. So I uh, wanted guys that could make the races, but we're superstars and that had a story, you know, and a lot of people don't really know the story of guys like Willie T. Ribs. You know, Willie T. Ribs may well have been one of the world's best drivers in the eighties, but again, because timing wasn't right with diversity and issues and auto racing was very hard for, for a, a, a person of color to break into uh, at that time. And then, and, and Willie, Willie was outspoken. You know, a, a great story, great story, you know, and, and as I said, you know, you look at Michael Waltrip, you know, both those guys got documentaries out about them. You know, Michael's blinking an eye, Willie's up. Just look, you look at that story. And, and then, you know, some of our other guys, it, it's not always about their successes. It's about a lot of these guys have had hit parts in their life where things haven't gone well for them and they fought through it. And to me, those are the things that will make them the heroes to our to our fans. And then they'll put on a hell of a show because they're all, they're all still pretty competitive. You know, they're, they're we're, we're going to have to order some, some extra body parts. Ken Schrader said, Ken Schrader said the biggest thing he's worried about is them tearing up the race cars. So Kenny, Kenny, um, Kenny Schrader and David Stremme are our two test drivers and they're doing a great job too. And I'd have spoken to uh, Boris said who, you know, you, you were, uh, had him on your team for a couple of seasons uh, in like the, uh, nationwide series at the time uh just he had said he'd be all for racing in it i remember that is there any chance we see boris <laughs> absolutely we're gonna you know we're going to you know our goal is to do two dirt ovals two paved ovals and two road races we weren't able to get the road race stuff in this year um really uh i feel very good about getting the two road races in for next year that's the way this car was designed OK, so uh, I, I, I promise you that uh, if we get that done, you will see Boris in the thing. Because to me, you know, and Boris has the credentials as a superstar road racer, but I don't know many people with as much personality as Boris. <laughs> That's an understatement. <laughs> um, but just if you're trying to persuade fans, you know, whether they're just uh, coming from watching stick and ball sports or they're watching NASCAR, IndyCar, F1, whatever it may be, what would you say to them to help persuade them to say, Hey, you should come watch the SRX. You know, if, if you really, you know, what, why do you watch basketball? Why do you watch football? Why do you, you know, do, do you watch it for the game or do you watch it to see somebody do something that you'd like to do, but can't do. And then, you know, being able to attach to the, the, those people. And, and, and again, I'm not a huge stick and ball guy. And I know some of, of, I watch some of the games, but I watch some of the games because it depends on who's playing. Mm -hmm. 
I, I'm, I'm not a huge football fan, but I'm a huge Tom Brady fan because of what he accomplished and, and, and what he's able to do and the way he carries himself. You know, and you look at people, whether it's LeBron James or Michael Jordan, or where, you know, people watch games for a specific reason. And we want to reach out to that casual fan and say, get to know these guys. And, 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 you know, you know, you get to, and hopefully something that they've done will make you feel good. Right. You, because if, if you turn on the TV, you want, you, you, you want to be entertained. You want to feel good. They're going to put on a heck of a show with race cars going around in a circle. But if it's just race cars going around in a circle, you can turn on TV and watch a lot of that. Our, you know, we want you to understand who these people, who these drivers are and what makes them compete like they do. I know, for instance, with, let's say, golf, Tiger Woods, I know just the ratings for a golf match just, just go up heavily just because the name and just the personality that he is. I think that's just a great example of just having that type of specific area. Yeah, and again, you people know, know Tiger, and there's people that cheer against him and people that cheer for him. And that's just that, you know, that that's just that that comes with being an athlete. Um, and we're going to have that, too. There's guys that are going to there's people who are going to love some of our guys and they're going to hate some of our guys. But you know what? They're going to turn on the TV, either to love them or hate them. And that's what we want. At the end of the day, they're going to see a show no matter what, especially some of the personalities that the series has. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how many times do I hear people say, man, I hate that guy, but God, he's good. <laughs> you know? Heard that a lot with Kyle Bush <laughs> recently. <laughs> Kyle's a great one. And, and yeah. again, hopefully we can get him in an SRX car. That'd be incredible to say the least. Uh, just final two questions. Um, if you were inducted, I know, or not if, you were inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame in 2018, just how special is that for you and just your family overall to officially say, I, you know, I was, I did all this with all the people around me? Um, that's the biggest award that you can get in, at the end of your career. Uh, bar none, uh, because it, it, it's a accumulation of everything you've done in your career to get to, um, to get to a point and to have, have be recognized by, obviously by NASCAR um, and, you know, my NASCAR competitors and friends and fans and NASCAR media, there, you know, there, there is no greater honor um, for, for someone who's involved in a sport than, than to be honored by being included in their hall of fame, you know, whether it's, the NFL or the NBA or, or Major League Baseball, you know, to me that um, if I'd have walked out the front door of the Hall of Fame and got run over by a bus, it was okay, you know, because I mean? it was that was uh, uh, you know NASCAR. Uh, I've been a member of NASCAR since and boy, this don't laugh now, but 1978, I believe. So. Um, for all of the years and all of the things and the things that we go through, you know, to, to be honored in what is still such a small group is the biggest honor that, that I've ever had. And I know one of your biggest passions is restoring cars uh, with Big Iron Garage. Um, just what all goes into restoring a car and just finding the pieces to be able to put it all together and make a masterpiece out of it. Uh, I like restoring vintage race cars. So, you know, the street cars are okay. They're fun, you know, um, um, but to me, I like doing the research and talking to the people and finding the original parts of the cars and, and how many original parts of race cars are still around. 
So, you know, we just did this, um, the DC 93, the Dodge Daytona, the Buddy Baker broke the world record at 200 miles per hour. And, and uh, that, that's been a long, it's been a, a over a two year project uh, on that car. And it's been incredible. We've restored, you know, a lot of other race cars here, um, but the path of finding the parts and the people that you meet and talk to along the way, and really the, the incredible story of where these cars have been and what they've done, you know, to me, that's the, that's the most fun. Very time consuming, consuming and sometimes pretty frustrating, but, but still a lot of fun. And uh, that's all the questions I have. Ray, I appreciate all of your time today. And uh, if you are looking for someone to do some content for the SRX, I'm graduating here next semester. So <laughs> I'll just throw that out there. Um, all right, well, good luck. You know, <laughs> come out and see us. Uh, come out and see us at a race. Definitely will. Uh, good luck with the SRX and uh, continue to get that uh, off, the, you know, off the ground running. And uh, you have a good day. Thank you, you too. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of Behind the Catch Fence with special guest Ray Evernham. Ray's incredible story of how he got to be Jeff Gordon's crew chief, along with his bold move to leave Hendrick Motorsports that bring Dodge back to NASCAR, were just so fascinating to hear about. Ray is one of the smartest people in motorsports, and to be able just to listen to him tell countless stories of pure innovation was a joy. I wish him and the entire SRX staff nothing but the best as they embark on a fun and thrilling series debut starting in June. We will definitely be watching, it's going to be a lot of fun. I can guarantee you that it's going to be an instant success, and I'm beyond excited to watch it grow. I'd like to thank Deck Cullum and Christy Staborski for making this all possible. I'd also like to thank Ray once again for coming on to the podcast. We're just about out of time for today's episode, so look out for more interviews and content over the next couple weeks. Before I go, make sure to follow this podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Behind Catch. Thank you for listening. I'll catch you guys later.